Turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, one of our church members on several occasions has given our family a box of chocolates made by a company that absolutely does it right. Because with this brand of chocolates, at least in our experience, you can count on it being delicious. But there are other brands that are a little bit more of a gamble. You bite into one and it has a wonderful flavor and then you bite into the next one and it's filled with aqua fresh. And it just is horrible. And so you don't know if you're eating a chocolate or you're having a procedure done at the dentist. With your other brands, your hand trembles a little bit as you go to take that bite because you don't know what's going to happen. And in the same way, there are certain texts of Scripture that although you know this is the inspired Word of God, as you sink your teeth into it, you fear there may be a bitter taste. And you fear it may make you highly uncomfortable. And one of those passages is before us today. Now, I'm very aware that this is Mother's Day, and very often I preach a special message on that topic, but we really just finally got back to the Gospel of John a couple of weeks ago, and after several months, I didn't want to really break our continuity at this point after now just getting back on track. And I know you're fine with that, but I didn't realize until just a week or two ago that this uncomfortable passage would fall on Mother's Day And there's no way to introduce this. I mean, how am I supposed to say in honor of Mother's Day, I would like to preach about Judas, the betrayer of Jesus. Welcome to Grace Bible Church on Mother's Day. But that's what we'll do. And actually, as Darren mentioned, I know that Mother's Day has very different connotations and emotions for different people. And so we'll find some common ground together that we can all delight in. And that is to continue examining the elements of a triumphant Christian life As found in John chapters 13 and 14, we find ourselves in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples shortly before the the supper, the last supper is going to be served. Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples before supper. And in this foot washing, we've seen thus far two elements of the triumphant Christian life. We've seen that the triumphant Christian life is a confession-filled life, and we've seen that it is a humility-filled life. And this morning, I'd like to propose that the triumphant Christian life is also a gratitude-filled life, a gratitude-filled life. And like that chocolate that at first may taste bitter, if we keep chewing, we will find a sweet center. And so let's work our way toward that center of a gratitude-filled life. But to get there, we have to navigate through some very tragic and treacherous waters of perhaps the most notorious man in all of the Bible, Judas Iscariot. Now, our text this morning brings us face to face with the truth of the sovereignty of God in salvation from sin, that God is wholly responsible, completely responsible for the choice of all who will be regenerated, all who will receive the broken heart of repentance from sin, and all who will receive the gift of faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're confronted with the equal reality that the one who is not saved, who is not chosen by God, is in fact fully responsible, fully accountable, fully culpable for his rebellion and turning away from the Lord. Now theologians have spent centuries trying to reconcile the ideas of the election of God versus the responsibility of man, but Scripture never presents them as being in competition at all. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, election and responsibility need never be introduced to one another. They have been long friends. And the one who would say that 
mankind has no responsibility to come to God by faith, must climb the Mount Everest of evidence to the contrary in Scripture. And the one who would say that God can't possibly just make a a sovereign active choice of those who will be saved must also climb the other side of the Mount Everest of evidence to the contrary in Scripture. And to be fair, this dichotomy is not really fully graspable to the mere human mind, and yet it is perfectly clear in Scripture. I think it's probably most succinctly explained in Romans 9. You don't have to turn there. But in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul famously characterizes all people as clay pots, as vessels. And these vessels are made to be filled up with something. And all that is filling these vessels will glorify God. But first he speaks of the vessels of wrath. He says in Romans 9.22, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And this verb, prepared for destruction, this is a, what's called a passive participle in Greek, meaning that we can say vessels of wrath preparing for destruction. Who's preparing for destruction? Those who are rejecting God's grace, who are preparing by means of their own sin, by means of their rebellion, by means of their turning away from the Lord. And then he speaks of the vessels of mercy. The vessels of wrath have a bigger purpose. God is glorifying and making known his wrath on those preparing for destruction. Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Notice who's doing the preparing here. God is. So God has sovereignly appointed the end result that some are preparing for destruction and some are being prepared for glory. And God has sovereignly also appointed the means to that end result. The means to the destruction of the ungodly is their own preparation, their own sin, their own rebellion for which they are fully responsible And the means to the glorification of the vessels of mercy is purely the gracious choice of God. Ephesians 1.4 says, He, that is God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now, this isn't some dry doctrinal discussion at which we roll our eyes and say, well, let's just move on to the real issues of life here. The fact of sovereign election and the fact of human responsibility touches every area of your life deeply. It touches the way we think about God. It touches the way we think about grace, about mercy. There's no area of life exempt from those truths. It affects your prayer. It affects your worship. It affects how you read the Bible. It affects your family. It affects your relationship. It affects everything. And our text today really gives us a front row seat in the facts of God's choice and man's choice. That God's choice of all who would be saved is completely autonomous, is totally independent, is completely free. God's choice depends on nothing, depends on no one. There's no sense in which a human being can make a fully independent choice to step out of his sin and into the righteousness of God. This must be the work of God alone. The regeneration that's given and caused by the Holy Spirit. This is God's work. But we do have a choice. We don't have a choice to become righteous. We have a choice to remain in our sin. And humanity's choice to rebel against the holiness and the love of God and to incur his wrath, this is a real decision. 
There's no sense in which someone who wishes they could be saved cannot be saved. Jesus said that all who would desire salvation would come to him. It's a real choice to not come to God. And so today in the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot, we have this this drama and this tension which is unfolding. This drama will play out in three parts and we'll just title them the authority of God's choice as the first part, the authority of God's choice. The second part of this drama is the accountability of human choice. The accountability of human choice. And the third part is the aftermath of human choice. The aftermath of human choice. So we'll look at the authority of God's choice, the accountability of human choice, and the aftermath of human choice. First part of the drama, the authority of God's choice. Look with me at John chapter 13, verse 18. This is Jesus speaking. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, we have to build a little context here. Jesus has just finished saying that if someone acts in humility, he will be blessed. Verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But as we saw last time, only the believer in Christ is actually capable of truly being humble For anyone else, at best, humility is false humility. Because by definition, an unbeliever is one who has not humbled himself in repentance before the Lord. And so now Jesus says, you will be blessed. But verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. He already knows that he will be betrayed. He knows who are his. He knows who are not his. He said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Now, unlike the popular idea of trying to marry divine election with total free will, which doesn't exist, by the way, there's no such thing as free will in the Bible, trying to marry divine election and total free will, which says God knew who would choose him. Well, Jesus says nothing of humanity choosing God. This is clear. He says, I know whom I have chosen. Chosen is a word that means selected. That means named. We we have an English word derived from from this Greek word. It is elect or election. Now, who is he speaking of specifically here? Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, who's also called Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Eleven men, if you were counting, but the twelfth man will turn against him. This is not a surprise to the Lord. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus quotes this prophecy, which is taken from Psalm 41. Psalm 41 speaks of a time in the life of King David when he was on his sickbed. And, and while he's sick, while he's weak, while he's in a time of, of vulnerability and perhaps unable to maintain a stronghold on his rule of Israel, Verse 5 of chapter four of Psalm 41 says, My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? Verse 6, David says that his visitors are fake and false. He says, quote, When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. In other words, well, I hope you get better soon, David. Not. I hope you die is what they're really saying. Now, the question is, What person goes to see his enemy on a sickbed? A person who is close to the sick person. Someone who's a pretend friend. 
someone who intends to betray the king. And here it is. Verse 9 of Psalm 41, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. This is premeditated rebellion of someone in the king's inner circle. Now, what we have here is a classic example of, ha- of a prophecy that has a real and personal meaning in the life of the original writer and a broader application prophetically. This is very important because there's a key difference between King David's situation and the situation that Jesus was in. David said, Even my close friend whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But Jesus just said, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is omniscient, all-knowing God. He already said in John 6, 64, There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Unlike David in Psalm 41, Jesus never trusted Judas because he always knew who he was. Now you may ask, well, why in the world did Jesus pick him in the first place? Why not just avoid a lot of trouble? Well, Acts 2.23 says that Jesus was delivered up, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, Judas would be the means by which God gets Jesus to the cross to provide the substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe. Now, there's no evidence in the Gospels whatsoever that Jesus ever treated Judas any differently than the other men. He knew that Judas had a wicked heart. He knew that Judas was stealing money from the money bag of the ministry. He knew what Judas would eventually do And yet he called him and treated him as a friend. Now remember that Jesus is fully human. And when you treat someone as a friend for three and a half years, what is their natural tendency to do? We have a natural level of real human attachment and real love. And that's what makes the betrayal such a kick in the gut for Jesus Christ. He who ate my bread meaning the one with whom I fellowshiped. We walked together, we ministered together, we talked together, we we camped out on the side of the road together, we traveled together, we did everything together, we laughed together. And this is the one who has lifted his heel against me. Now you might think of that as metaphorically kicking someone while they're down. I think there's a better choice that's much more hurtful here. In Jesus' day, they had a saying which spoke of demonstrating total rejection and total refusal to fellowship, and it's related to the foot also, and that was to shake the dust off your feet. It means that as you're walking away from someone or walking away from some place with whom you're breaking fellowship, you lift up each foot and you shake and you wipe the dust off as if to say, I don't even want the dirt from this place on my foot. This is what Jesus told his disciples to do with any town in which they preached the gospel and were rejected. Mark 6, 11, And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Thus, to lift your heel against someone isn't just a kick. It's a total testimony that says, I reject you, I want nothing to do with you, I deny you, I am repulsed by you. And so Jesus has made this announcement to his disciples that he's chosen 11. One has not been chosen, 
And he gives his reason in verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus has already made several other predictions to his disciples. In Mark 13, he predicted the coming persecution and the false prophets after he would depart the earth. He, of course, predicted his own death and resurrection multiple times. He never predicts his death without including the resurrection, by the way. In the next chapter, he'll explain that he's going to his Father and that he's sending the Holy Spirit. And he says in John fourteen twenty nine, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. And so here he's making another prediction. He wants them to understand that he's not going to be the victim of a surprise attack. This isn't going to come as a shock to him. He has been sent by God to walk into this divinely appointed sacrifice. And the fulfillment of these predictions, although they're very grim predictions, they will vindicate and authenticate his authority. And and thus the, the disciples will have all of these predictions to look back on to confirm and comfort and give them confidence that they are in fact following the very Son of God himself. And then verse 20, it, it seems like it's just parachuted in here and it doesn't really make sense until we look at it a little bit more closely. Jesus seems to interrupt himself in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, who, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. What's he saying? He's saying that just as the Father sent Jesus, and whoever would receive Jesus and his message would be received and accepted by the Father, so in the same way, whoever receives the disciples, meaning welcoming them and believing their gospel message, receives Jesus and thus receives the Father. Now, why is this pronouncement just stuck here right between Jesus' prediction of a betrayer and the moment that he's about to identify the betrayer? Why is this here? Well, after being patient these past three and a half years, after having the elect and the non-elect together, after having the 12 together, he's about to separate the true disciples from the false because in a moment, Jesus will identify his betrayer. He will excuse him from the room. Never again will Judas be part of the company of those who represent Christ. There's about to be a separation that takes place. And just these Three verses alone, verses 18 through 20, they're saturated with the authority of God's choice. Jesus knows the exact identity of all that he's chosen. He knew when the Holy Spirit inspired Psalm 41 a thousand years earlier that David wrote of not only David's betrayer, but of his betrayer. The betrayer will be fully responsible for his sin. He's telling the disciples before it happens, that he will be betrayed and he's predicting that all who receive the message of the apostles in the future will be accepted by the Father. What does that mean? That means that Jesus knows everyone who has been chosen already. He already has this knowledge. There's no passivity. There's no sense of being docile. There's no non-participation on the part of God. God alone possesses all authority and all sovereignty to make all choices. And I hope And I pray, and I've prayed for you this week, that you will never, never fall into the temptation to grow weary of that glorious truth. That's the truth which illumines our joy and our hope and salvation. Because the authority of God's choice, it's comprehensive, it's full. As is the second part of this drama, the accountability of human choice. 
the accountability of human choice. Verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. He's troubled in the spirit. This is the same word used in John eleven thirty three to describe Jesus concerning the death of Lazarus and the grief of those around him. It's a word that means perturbed, bothered, agitated. In both instances, when Jesus is described as feeling this emotion, it's related to the horror and the revulsion of human death. Because human death is the result of sin. It is the work of Satan. And here, Jesus is facing very shortly, just in hours now, the prospect of his own torture, the prospect of his own death. There's, of course, the grief and the injustice of being betrayed by his friend. And we certainly see in all its glory here the the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Well, this statement would obviously be upsetting to the men gathered at the supper table here. And they are upset. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So first they're communicating with their eyes. This is a dramatic moment. They've been together night and day for over three years. And now one of them is about to be exposed as a traitor. Well, just a few months earlier, back in John 6, Jesus had told them that one of them would betray him. John 6, 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And yet they continued on in the ministry, and so the matter was dropped. So when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, first they started looking at each other. They're, They're looking probably with some confusion and probably with some accusation. But then they start talking. Mark 14, verse 19 adds, They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it me? Did I, did I do something? Am I not understanding this? Is it I, Lord? Mark 26, 25 adds, And this is just downright chilling. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Judas kept deceiving right to the end. He kept up the show for the other 11. Jesus was seated close to Judas and he told Judas in a way that the others did not hear. Yes, I know it's you. Now, this is not to imply that somehow Judas was unaware that he was about to be used by Satan. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, all record that by now Judas had already bargained with the chief priest to deliver Jesus up for the 30 pieces of silver that they gave him. And now, right about now, you can imagine this confusion and talking just starts bursting forth. Luke's gospel adds this in Luke 22, 23, and they, that is the disciples, began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And apparently while these multiple accusations are flying back and forth and and people talking over one another, Peter thought he would just go right to the source. Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? This disciple whom Jesus loved, this is an unnamed disciple who makes four more cameo appearances in the gospel. Finally, we find out who he is in John 21, 24, that he's the one who wrote the gospel. This is John. 
John is the opposite of Judas. John has a close relationship with Christ that's real, that's authentic. Judas has a fake relationship with Christ that is nothing. And so Peter motions to John. It may have been a little nod of the head or if he thought Jesus wasn't looking and Jesus is looking that way, it may have been a a larger... (laughs) You ladies, you can do this. You, you You can look at each other. I've witnessed this. You can look at each other. And the other one just says, oh, sure, I'd love to get together Tuesday at 2 o'clock. Like, how, how did that happen? Men don't do that. And so Peter, though, knowing John, made some sort of gesture say, ask him, ask him. John was right next to Jesus, and, and the text says he just leaned back against him. Remember, they reclined at a low table on mats or, or small pillows. And he said that just so Jesus could hear, Lord, who is it? And Jesus is about to identify Judas as the man who would betray him. Who is Judas? Judas grew up near Jerusalem in the province of Judea. He served as the treasurer of the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. His name appears last on every single one of the lists of the twelve. He's called Judas Iscariot. That's used to distinguish him from the many others who had the name Judas. Judas is the Hellenized Greek version of the the Hebrew name Yehuda, Judah. So it was a very common name. Iscariot is a word that means man of Kiriath and is likely referring to his hometown, Kiriath, in, in southern Judea. He was the only one of the twelve who didn't grow up in Galilee, the northern province of that area where Jesus grew up. We know that Judeans in the south often look down on Galileans as being less sophisticated than than themselves. And from a human perspective, it's entirely possible that this sort of prejudice might have played in the Judas's mind as being some sort of justification for betraying Jesus, that Galilean. Judas is never mentioned one time without some reference to his betrayal of the Lord for handing Jesus over to the Jewish authorities. So the big question is then, was Judas a helpless pawn? Should we feel sorry for him? Should we pity him? Some would say that he never had any say in the matter, that that since, since the prophecy of a betrayer was already there, that Judas was already pegged, that he was already put into this slot, and that he was going to be consigned to the lake of fire, whether he wanted it or not, that he was unable to resist the work of Satan in his life. Judas didn't say that. Judas never said, oh, well, I couldn't help it. The devil made me do it. Instead, later when he confessed, not confession leading to true repentance, but a confession of acknowledging who was responsible. Notice who Judas held responsible. Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned. I have sinned. The accountability of humans for their own sin is full, it's complete, it's total. There are no excuses, there are no outs, there are no explanations. We can see an example of the authority of God and the accountability of man put together in a different text, particularly when we think about the death of Christ. In Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter is preaching to unsaved Jews and he's condemning them for putting Jesus to death. And yet notice the juxtaposition of God's sovereignty and man's sin, how they're put together. Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching that Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They are accountable. God's plan, men are accountable. The authority of God's choice, the accountability of human choice, both incredibly stark realities in Scripture. And there's a third part to our drama here of God's sovereign election. And that is, we'll call it the aftermath of human choice. The aftermath of human choice. Now Jesus will fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 41.9 in a very literal fashion. John has leaned back in the midst of the disciples accusing one another and, and quietly asked, who is it? Who is it? In verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And now Psalm 41.9 has been fulfilled. They have broken bread together and Judas is the betrayer. So Jesus will dismiss Judas. The next time they meet will be in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus goes through the charade of friendship as he identifies Jesus to the arresting soldiers with a kiss of familiarity. And in verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Notice that Judas took the morsel before Satan entered into him. Who made that choice? Judas did. Now, we brought this up a few weeks ago, but I think it's worth revisiting. There's somewhat of a conundrum, a little bit of a puzzle that presents itself here. Judas became Satan's pawn to try to get Jesus to the cross. But the puzzle that we have is that it seems to be different than what Satan's plan used to be. Mark 9 and Matthew 16 Jesus told his disciples that he must suffer and that he would die. That this would be for the sins of all who would come to Christ by faith. Well, Peter pulled Jesus aside and he said, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Satan was trying to stop Jesus from going to the cross. He was trying to get Jesus to fail in his mission. And this wasn't the first time that Satan tried to stop Jesus from going all the way to the cross. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempted Jesus with fame, with power, with endless provision in an attempt to get Jesus to succumb to sin, although in the impeccability of Christ, it's not possible for Jesus to sin. But there he was trying to get Jesus to fail his mission, to just have all of these goodies without going to the cross. But now there's a change in strategy. Satan enters Judas to try to get Jesus to the cross. But listen, this is a change in strategy, not a change in the mission. Because now both earthly forces and spiritual forces are are plotting against Jesus. Because if Jesus goes to the cross, if he dies, if he's successful in this mission, then there will be forgiveness of sin made available. And Jesus will someday victoriously lead an army of the redeemed to take the earth away from Satan and to consign Satan to hell. Unlike the cartoons that often portray Satan in hell, Satan is terrified of hell. He will be the first one there. Satan does not want Jesus to die a sacrificial death. He wants Jesus to fail in his mission. So why is Satan working overtime to push Jesus toward the cross? When Jesus was arrested, Luke 22 says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, who had come out against him, 
Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. So why is Satan now trying to get Jesus to the cross? Satan is rolling the dice. He is making the bet of his lifetime. Satan is going to throw everything he has at Jesus to get Jesus to stop his path to the cross. Jesus will agonize in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And his anguish is such that he sweats great drops of blood. And Satan is wanting Jesus to succumb. He'll throw at Jesus the heartbreak of being betrayed by a friend. He'll throw at him being humiliated in front of his people. He'll throw at him a a massive amount of torture, a sleepless night with six trials, three before his Jewish fellows and three before the Romans. He'll throw at him the agony of the cross. And you remember that, that Peter drew his rusty sword and tried to rescue Jesus in a sad attempt. And Jesus stopped him and said, couldn't I call more than 12 legions of angels? That's exactly what Satan wanted him to do. Satan is throwing everything he can at him. Pain and degradation and anxiety and the, the fear of coming death and betrayal by a friend. And Satan is saying, do it, do it, do it. Ask to be saved. Ask for relief to be spared. This is the ultimate temptation of Jesus. As if Satan is saying, you can stop all this. You can avoid this. And it may even be that Satan's offer still stands. He offered Jesus that all the kingdoms of the earth would be his if only Jesus would bow down to him. But Satan still denigrates and he still underestimates the power of the Son of God, the resolve and the might that Jesus will exert both as God and by the strength of the Holy Spirit as a man to complete his mission, to die a death that he doesn't deserve, which would fulfill the prophecy of three Genesis 3.15 that the seed of woman will crush the head of Satan. And Judas is the willing participant in Satan's scheme He bet on the wrong side. And so Jesus dismisses Judas. Judas is now possessed, controlled by the second most powerful being in the universe, Satan himself. Verse 28. Now knowing that the table knew why he said this to him, some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Only Jesus, Judas, and John knew at this point what was really going on. I, I find this amusing. John didn't bother to tell Peter what the answer to his question was. By the way, one last slap in the face from Judas. By leaving, Judas also took all the money that the disciples and Jesus had to live on. What happened next? Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. How ironic that by sharing bread with Jesus, Judas is identified as being against Jesus Christ. And by sharing bread with Jesus in the first Lord's Supper, the other disciples are identified as being with Jesus Christ. Judas set out to cause the death of Christ and the others were called to remember the death of Christ. And this drama ends with a brief note, but it's one that's weighted with significance. The end of verse 30 And it was night. 
This isn't just a time marker. This isn't just saying what time it is. This describes the spiritual atmosphere of this moment, consistent with this metaphor used numerous times in John. Speaking of the coming of Christ into the world, John 1 verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus made a proclamation of judgment early in his ministry in John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And Jesus, on so many occasions, he offered to take sinners out of their spiritual darkness. He said in John 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus clearly proclaimed that conversion is necessary, that a new birth in Christ is necessary for salvation. The removal of spiritual blindness is necessary. He said in John 11, verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus warned a crowd that was following him. He warned them in John 12, 35, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And again, Jesus offered in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so when the text says, and it was night, this was the time when Jesus is about to be betrayed. This is the time when, as he said in Luke, it is the hour of darkness. Judas has been sent out into the darkness. And very soon he'll be consigned to the place of outer darkness forever. What's the aftermath of human choice? The choice to reject your only hope of salvation from sin. The choice to shake the dust off your feet at the Savior of the world. The the choice to follow the enemy of God instead of God. The choice to remain a child of the devil instead of receiving the offer to become a child of God. What's the aftermath? Matthew 27 says this, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Acts chapter 1 adds the detail that in some fashion, perhaps after his corpse began to rot, his body fell and burst open and his guts were everywhere. That's the end of the betrayer. But the relief from his misery that Judas sought in death would not be relief. He would simply face God in judgment as one of whom Jesus said, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Matthew 26. The aftermath of human choice is serious business. There's nothing more serious, in fact. Judas had heard the gospel for three and a half years. He had literally lived with Jesus Christ all that time, and yet he turned away. And so Judas becomes very much the epitome of the unbeliever because all unbelievers ultimately have betrayed Christ. Jesus is our maker. He is our only hope for forgiveness of sin. He's graciously offered to us eternal life. And yet the unbeliever has refused. And by his refusal, he is shaking his fist at Christ, or if I could put it this way, he has lifted his heel against Christ. 
Now, we've bitten into the chocolate, which is bitter and harsh. But what do we find in the middle? We find our reason for eternal and everlasting and profound gratitude in the Lord. What's the spiritual difference between you and Judas? Nothing. There is no spiritual difference between you and Judas. Even to say, well, I never would have betrayed Jesus, that's to say, is it I, Lord? It's the same thing. Our our finite minds cannot fully comprehend the vastness of God when it comes to considering that Judas was fully accountable and that he chose to turn away from Christ while the other disciples are in the category of, I know whom I have chosen. We, We can't grasp that. But can I put it to you a different way? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How? According to the purpose of his will. God made all the solar systems, all the planets, all the suns, all the stars. How? According to the purpose of his will. God made the earth. God made humanity. How? According to the purpose of his will. As part of his overarching plan to glorify his grace and his mercy, God allowed the entrance of sin into the universe, all without ever violating his own holiness, without ever violating his own purity. How? according to the purpose of his will. Isaiah 46, verse 10, God proclaims that he declares the end from the beginning, that he's sovereign over every single event in human history. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. How? According to the purpose of his will. God took Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans and told him that he would have a chosen son when his wife is 90. And Isaac was born when Abraham's wife was 90. How? According to the purpose of his will. God told Abraham that the nation that would come from him would be in bondage 400 years before being rescued. This is before Abraham even had a son. And all that he said to Abraham would come true. How? According to the purpose of his will. Israel took the land of Canaan as God promised. How? According to the purpose of his will. When Israel sinned and the kingdom split to the north and south, God promised to raise up Assyria to punish the northern kingdom, and it happened, 722 B.C. How? According to the purpose of his will. God promised to raise up Babylon to punish the southern kingdom of Judah, and it happened, 586 B.C. How? According to the purpose of his will. But... God doesn't like people hurting his own people. So before God raised up Assyria to punish the northern kingdom, he predicted he would crush Assyria afterward in Isaiah 10. How? According to the purpose of his will. And before God raised up Babylon to punish the southern kingdom, he predicted he would then crush Babylon afterwards. Habakkuk 2 and 3. How? According to the purpose of his will. God said that he would return his people to their land, and he did according to the purpose of his will. God told the leader of the Babylonians in Daniel 5 that his kingdom would be taken from him that night. And that very night, the Medo-Persian army stormed Babylon and toppled the most powerful empire on earth. Why? Because of the purpose of God's will. God told King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon through the prophet Daniel that when he refused to acknowledge God as the most high God, he would be reduced to being like an animal for seven years. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar pronounced himself as having all the mighty power. Quote, he was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox for seven years. How did God do this? According to the purpose of his will. 
God also predicted through the prophet Daniel that he would crush the Babylonian Empire in favor of the Medo-Persian Empire that would then be taken out by the Greek Empire, which would be taken out by the Roman Empire. And all of them would ultimately be crushed and dominated by a stone that would take out all these kingdoms. The stone, of course, being the future rule of Jesus Christ. What's happened so far? Babylonians, gone. Medo-Persians, gone. Greeks, gone. Romans, gone. How? according to the purpose of his will. And to continue his plan that he had all along of bringing a Savior into the world, the very Son of God, God said in the Old Testament of this coming Savior, he will come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will come from the tribe of Judah. He will be descended from King David. He will be born in Bethlehem, and he will be born miraculously to a virgin mother. How? According to the purpose of his will. So, For you or I to think that this God sat back passively hoping and wondering if you would make an independent intellectual decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ is absurd. Because Ephesians 1 tells us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Unquote. Our place is not to congratulate ourselves, but to thank God for his grace because there is nothing separating you from Judas except grace. There's nothing separating you from Judas except mercy. And the only right response to this mercy is an eternal and a trembling and an exuberant gratitude. Amen. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you for your grace and for your mercy, for your kindness to us. You are holy and you are pure. You are above all things and you are above your creation. You are infinitely separate from us you're infinitely transcendent and yet you have chosen in your kindness in your mercy to reach down into the muck and mire of sinful humanity and to take those that you called out from before eternity passed and to grasp us by the hand and to wrench us free from our own sin And we have nothing to say in our own defense except thank you. I would have been Judas. We would have been Judas. And Lord, we praise you and thank you that we are now included among those when Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. We bless you. We thank you. We humbly offer our gratitude to you all for the glory of Christ that we pray. Amen.